This morning, um, <clears throat> my message is going to be a little bit different. And to you, it'll probably sound quite a bit different. Because today, what God has put on my heart is to communicate to you in the form of story. And, and let me explain that. Uh, over the past 40 or 50 years, a consensus has emerged among neuropsychologists, other people who study the brain and epistemology learning what the consensus is, is that people essentially learn, retrieve, and organize data in their brain in the form of narratives or stories. And so, yes, it's true, we memorize facts. It's true, we learn knowledge. It is true that we have to retrieve that knowledge in some way, shape, or form. But the way we do that is through narratives and stories. There's a more important reason why I want to do a story this morning, and that is because this book that we call the Bible really is a grand epic. There's one narrative thread that weaves its way through the 66 books that make up our Bible. And even though there's hundreds, if not thousands, of individual smaller stories, there is one story that emerges about the God of the universe. And so he is obviously a God of story. That is the way he communicates with us and, and reveals himself to us. And so this morning, I'm going to be talking about three stories that, that weave their way together and actually uh, make a tapestry that weaves into a fourth story. But I, I want to make sure you understand that, that there's stories that can go on for many years, epic stories, and, and then there's smaller stories. And, and so in, in 1983, 32 years ago, I met my wife, Jan. And I believe an epic love story began 32 years ago. And it began with two young folks falling in love. Uh, there was joy and happiness for at least a few months. <laughs> and then very sadly, uh, because of my conduct, betrayal and, and, and hurt and pain got into our story. And that went on for several years. And just as we were about to divorce and break up, God intervened. I put my faith in Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. And a new epic part of our story began, a story of, of healing, of growing in connection and intimacy, growing in love and being part of what God is doing. Together, we're being part of what God is doing on this earth. That's, that's the grand epic of our love story. But there's smaller stories, some that lasted years, some that lasted months, some, some that just lasted a day. In fact, last week, we had a smaller story, uh, a story that, uh, of a conflict. And I'll tell you a little bit about that story. It began with me going to my office, as I always do, and, and working just unbelievably hard to provide for her and put a roof over her head. I mean, I persevered. I went through unimaginable hardships to provide for my sweet wife. I, I overcame just unbelievable obstacles during the course of that day. And then I came out of my office, and in her ungratitude, uh, she didn't recognize my heroic efforts on her behalf, and she became insensitive and ungrateful. Now, um, she may have organized the data of that day slightly different from me, and I may have skewed uh, that story a little bit in my favor, but whatever happened that day, we both organized it and stored it in the form of a story. And so they can be small stories, and they can be large stories. And as I said, today we're going to weave together three stories into one epic story. And what I want you to understand is that sometimes in our culture, 
We hear the word story and we think of fiction, something made up, like, like a bedtime story. But there's another uh, use of that word that I'm intending today. Because each and every story you hear today, the three stories that you will hear to get today are absolutely true and factual. And they weave together into the epic story, the greatest story ever, the truest truth of this universe, the story upon which all other stories depend. And so let's get started with a word of prayer. Father, I am truly grateful that you are a God of story and that you have chosen to communicate to us through story. And Father, I, I pray that the message today will be pleasing to you and that you will use it to say something deep into the heart of the people of Rock Hills that I love so much and, and that it would impact their life and stir them to follow you in a really dynamic and passionate way. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to begin today. The first story we're going to begin today with is the story of King David. Many of you know that story. The, the overarching story, the grand story, is David was born into Bethlehem. It was a, it was a small rural town, pretty nondescript, not, not much going on there. He was born as the eighth son of a man named Jesse. And, and being the youngest, not much was expected of him. In fact, he was sort of vanquished to herding sheep in the wilderness. And then God intervened, and over a series of events, God took David, this humble shepherd, and elevated him to be the king of Israel. And at that time in history, 1000 BC, Israel was the most powerful country in the world. David basically became the king of Israel. He was their mightiest warrior. They had the most powerful army in the world. He was the richest man in the world, the most powerful man in the world. But then something more happened. God chose to put David in the lineage of Jesus Christ. David is an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's like his great, 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 great grandfather, okay? And so one of the most amazing stories in the history of our planet is the story of King David. But there were many smaller stories written in David's life. And we're going to look at one of them today. And we're in the Psalms. As you know, we're in a series about the Psalms. And this is a famous Psalm written by David. And it's Psalm 22. And it's written about a specific time. And let me tell you the smaller story that it's written about. So at this time in Israel, Saul is king. And God appears to the prophet Samuel and says, Saul has disobeyed me. And I put Saul up as king. And I'm deciding now to take him down. And what I want you to do is I want you to go anoint a young man to be the new king of Israel. And Samuel says, yes, Lord, I'll do it. And God says, go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. One of his sons will be the new king of Israel. And so Samuel travels there. He goes to Jesse and says, the Lord has sent me. One of your sons is going to be the new king of Israel. And Jesse, just sure as anything, brings out his oldest son, who the Bible says is a very tall, very good-looking, very accomplished, charismatic young man. And Samuel looks at him and says, no, that's not him. And he goes through each of his first seven sons. And each time, God tells Samuel, no, that's not him. And finally, he looks at Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I got one out there in the woods with the sheep. 
but he's kind of the runt of the litter. And, and Samuel says, bring him in. And sure enough, that is the man that God chose to be king of Israel. And so Samuel anoints him. And at that point, Saul was still uh, doing battle with the Philistines. And, and the word goes out in the land that they're doing battle with the Philistines. And there's this mighty warrior named Goliath that nobody can defeat. David leaves the fields, goes to the battlefield, takes on Goliath, and of course, you know, defeats him. And that's where things get a little edgy for David because now everybody in Israel is talking about King da- or talking about David. They don't know he's been anointed king yet. But Saul, who's starting to become a little unhinged, is incredibly jealous. He becomes obsessed with David. Wherever, wherever he goes, he hears people talking about David. And he, and he begins to spiral into darker thoughts. And, and he becomes kind of Looney Tunes. And in fact, he, he starts to go crazy. I mean, like bat guana crazy. I mean, like really crazy, you know? And, and at one point... He's like consulting witches. And at another point, David is playing a lair and, and, and Saul is just so upset he loses it and throws a spear at him and tries to kill him and, and David has to go on the run. And David gathers a few other guys who had been sort of banished by Saul and they're on the run away from Saul, just trying to stay alive. And at one point, they're hiding out in caves and Saul's out there looking for him and Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself. And after he's done, he sits down to rest for a minute, and David's right behind him. He could have killed Saul right then and there. But he doesn't. He lets him go. And afterwards, his men are like, are you crazy? You had the chance to kill Saul. It could have ended our, you know, our exile. We could have gone back to, to be with our people in Israel. And, and David said this. He said, the God of the universe put Saul as king. I trust that God can take him down whenever he wants And so I'm waiting upon God to do that. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, God arranges things and Saul is killed in battle and David becomes a rightful king. So Psalm 22 is a snapshot of this time when David is on the run. He's crying out to God. He can't figure out what's going on. He's been anointed king and he's saying, where are you? I thought I was king. Do you hear me? Are you listening? I'm brokenhearted. I'm away from my family and everyone I know. What is going on, Lord? And that's sort of the background behind Psalm 22. And, and because we're doing story, I decided not to put the scripture up on the, on the screen. You know, for centuries and thousands of years, the Bible was passed down as an oral tradition. So I'd like for you just to listen to it today. And, and I'm just going to read a few verses. And so at the very beginning of Psalm 22, David writes this. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Now, if you know your Bible and you've read the Gospels, that may sound familiar. And we'll get back to that. Why are you so far from me, from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and and you are silent. Can you hear the cry of a heart that, that just can't figure out what's going on? And what I want you to think about is that this is a long journey that we're on, this journey of life. And I believe that each of us will find a time in our life where we feel apart from God. Where we feel like, do you even hear me? Do you know what's going on? I'm brokenhearted. Will you deliver me? 
David was described by God himself as a man after his own heart. If David can go through these dark times, it's something that none of us can avoid. So maybe you've been through a dark time recently. Maybe you're going through one now. Maybe there's a, a storm in your marriage. Maybe there's some uncertainty in your job situation. Maybe there's difficulty with a child or a relative. Maybe there's a health issue. I don't know. And maybe you're crying out to God saying, are you going to deliver me? And I want to encourage you that, that the answer is going to be maybe. <laughs> and here's what, what David says next. He says, after, after making this cry, this complaint, this cry of the heart, David begins to speak truth in this psalm. Even though he has not been delivered, he says this, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. And so David is calling upon the character of God. He knows that this is a God who will not leave David without some sort of comfort. Someone once put it this way. When a child is crying in a storm and just upset and losing it in a storm, sometimes God calms the storm and sometimes God calms the child. Sometimes he will provide deliverance, but God will always be there to see you through those difficult times. And so at the end of this psalm, David brings up another point that will be woven into the story of David. And when he says this, posterity, these are the last two verses of the psalm, posterity will serve God. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Those generations will proclaim the Lord's righteousness to people yet unborn for he has done it, or it is finished. Again, you may recognize those words from the gospel, and we'll get back to that. But what David is saying is in this grand story of his, part of his heart was to proclaim the truth and goodness into the world, the truth and the goodness of God. So that's the story of David. Let's set that story aside for just a moment. We're going to talk about another story, and this is the story of Mark Smith. Uh, most of you know Mark Smith. He's been part of this Rock Hills community since 2010. Uh, you'd recognize him. He's a super old guy. I mean, white hair. Uh, looks kind of like my dad. You know, I'm 63, and I think Mark is 66. Uh, way older than me. Uh, you know, I'm just kidding. Mark and Susan Smith are two of the best friends that Janet and I have ever had. And I'm not sure you know Mark's story. He was born in the small town of Muskogee, Oklahoma. And his grandfather was an alcoholic and been married five times. His father was an alcoholic and after 30 years of marriage, left his mom. But fortunately, Mark had a wonderful mother, raised him well. After he graduated high school, he went on to the University of Arkansas. But there, he set on a path that was going to bring him to the same destiny as his father and grandfather. He began heavy drinking. And he said almost every night he'd come back to the dorm, and he was so drunk, the only way he could find the dorm was lean against the wall and count the doors until he finally stumbled into his room. And he had a roommate that he'd never met before that they'd just gotten together that that fall. 
And this roommate, if Mark fell or tripped, he'd help him to his bed. If he got sick during the night, he'd help clean him up. He said, Mark said, that was the wonderful part. The bad part is every morning about 5.30 or 6, the light would be on, the guy would be studying. And I'd curse at the guy. I said, turn off the light. Are you crazy getting up at this hour? And this went on for months. And then finally, Mark realized he was studying the Bible in the morning. And he said to his roommate, said, you have something that I don't have. What is it? And his roommate gave him a book about Jesus. And a few months later, Mark put his faith in Jesus Christ. That changed everything in his life. That changed the whole trajectory of his life. He decided to go to Bible, stu- Bible school, graduated from, from Bible college. He became a pastor. For many years, he served faithfully in the church. And then in 1984, he decided, he and Susan decided to come to San Antonio to plant a church, just like Dave and, and Candace did back in 2006. Mark and Susan came in 1984 to plant a church in San Antonio. And that church is still going today. It's Fellowship Bible Church. It's on Hebner. They've got a beautiful campus, you know, a large church of, of great people. And, and Mark faithfully pastored that church for many years. And then in 2005, he began to have a stirring in his heart. Because over the years, he had started to do water projects. He just felt called by the, by the need in this world. Many of you know that there are literally billions of people living in this world without water, and they're crying out, many of them to God, can you bring us clean water? And, and, and Mark began to hear the cry of their hearts. But not only that, he was moved by the second part of this psalm that we just read, about David saying, people need to go and proclaim the truth of God into the world. And so Mark began to realize, yes, God hears the cries of brokenhearted and answers them, but so often he uses the people, God's people, to answer the cries of the brokenhearted. And so that's how Mark's story began to weave with the story of David. You see that? The stories took similar kind of paths. And so Mark started to do water projects. And then in 2005, he felt that God was beginning to call him to do water projects full time. Slowly, he began to transition out of his church. The church decided they were going to elevate the youth pastor to lead pastor. And, and this youth pastor was a man that Mark had, young man that Mark had mentored and, and, and had poured his life into. And after he was elevated, sadly, he was, he was so insecure in his position and so concerned, he began not only just push Mark away, but basically to, to talk badly about him and stab him in the back. And Mark was crying out to God, what's going on? You know, I'm getting stabbed in the back. Uh, you know, gossip and slander about me in, in the church that I love and, and that I planted. I'm trying to transition to full-time water project, and, and, and I'm not getting funding. What are you doing, Lord? He cried out to God. And God didn't answer him immediately. But over time, over a period of years, just like with David, God began to answer. And funding started to come in. And like David, another way Mark's story weaves with David, Mark could have gone to key people in that church and told them certain things that would have taken down this young pastor. In his humility, Mark said the same thing that David did when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. He said, God is the one that elevated this young man to be pastor of this church. God can take him out. And so Mark left the church, despite how hard that was, and ended up coming over here 
to Rock Hills in 2010. And he's been an amazing member of this church. A lot of you probably don't even know him because he works so, uh, just so, without fanfare, without tooting his own horn, behind the scenes, but he's had a profound impact on our faith community because about 40 guys of Rock Hills have gone on these water projects. It is not too much to say that our church would not be the same without Mark Smith because of the impact that those trips have had on the men of Rock Hills and, and therefore on our faith community. And so since 2008, Mark has done over 30 trips to Honduras. Now, why Honduras? Well, I've got a couple of pictures here because I want to help you understand that. First, the typical house in Honduras. I think we have a picture of that. Basically, in these little villages, by, by the way, there's, there's three or four major cities and then a couple of dozen big towns that have that have uh, water and electricity. Besides that, there's about 15,000 villages. The vast majority of the people in Honduras live without electricity or running water. Most of them have built their own homes. Essentially, the men go into the woods, cut down some trees, stick the wood, stick the, the trees in the ground, and plaster with mud, get some corrugated tin, and that's their roof. No running water, no electricity, no, a lot of times just a dirt floor, you know, probably about from here over, you know, around the curtain is about the size of the average house. It's just unbelievable poverty. Honduras is one of the poorest nations in the world. It is the second poorest uh, nation behind uh, Haiti in the Western Hemisphere. But one of the things that's most sad is that there's no clean water for these people. I think we have a picture of the, the watering hole. That, the first day we were on this last trip, we were walking up to the new tank uh, that's going to be their new water source, and they showed us, and this is where so many of the people in the village got their water. It's basically a muddy creek that runs through miles of, of uh, agricultural area where there's cows and, and horses and chemicals. And over and over, there's, there's massive uh, infant mortality. There's, there's rampant sickness and parasites as people get sick. And so that's why Honduras, and, and I think we have a picture of the typical Honduran, yeah, the, the kids have to go gather the water, so they'll have a 20-minute walk to that water source, they'll fill up those containers, and they'll bring that home, and that's what they use for food and cleaning their clothes and other necessities of water. And so that's why Mark decided to go to Honduras. So you can understand a little bit better how the project works. Here's a short video Mark shot this summer, and I think we have that of him describing... It's an amazing thing to be in the middle of the Honduran mountains and to provide a fresh, clean water system for a village of over 45 homes. I was talking to the teacher in this village. She said for over 41 years, the children have not had clean water. She said periodically she takes five to six inch worms out of their throats because of the parasites. It totally affects all the village. We come in with our engineer who's out of one of these villages. He's got a master's in engineering. He engineers the whole system. It's very simple. We find a water source. We encapsulate it in concrete and run a pipe from the water source. And then we build an 8,000 gallon water tank like you see behind me. That run may be as far as eight miles. We dig and bury all the pipes underneath the ground. We take the water tank then 
uh, we run a line all the way to each home so that each home can turn it on and have clean water. Periodically, the tank is drained and scrubbed. All the Honduran men are trained. And this system never breaks down. Our first system that we built almost 25 years ago is still working today. Thanks that you can be a part of something so miraculous and so life-changing as we bring clean water to these villages. Mark is 66 years old. Most guys his age are kicking back somewhere, living in a house on a golf course. You can't imagine how hard these trips are. Just ask the guys. We're living together in a small room about the size of this stage, all 12 guys. We're uh, very, very primitive situations, uh, working hard all day long in brutal conditions. And Mark continues to do that. And you know what? Mark and I feel the same way. Until you guys wheel us out of here in our wheelchair, kicking and screaming to the old folks' home, we're going to be around Rock Hills as long as we can be. Because we love, there's, there's nothing Nothing we love more than doing the two things that David talks about in this psalm. The cries of the brokenhearted are going out, and we're answering those. The Lord wants his name proclaimed throughout the world, and while we're building the project, we share the truth of the gospel in every village with every man, woman, and child. And so that's Mark's story. That's the second story. The third story that I'm going to talk about today intersects with Mark and the Rock Hills guys this past trip to Potrios, Rios. And, and I think we have a picture of, of Julio. Julio is one of our compañeros. And Julio is 14 years old, and literally he's about this tall. If you saw him on the streets of San Antonio, you, you would think, we all thought he was like seven or eight. We were shocked when he found out he was 14. But he had a fire inside him, just this incredible energy. There was something special, a spark inside Julio. He worked alongside us all, all the whole week. And about three days in, he asked me and a couple other guys to go to his house, and we met his, his mother, Anna, and we learned Anna and Julio's story. Anna grew up in Pocherios. She met her husband, and, and like most women in this village, she was a teenager, and she got married and started having kids. She had eight children. Julio was the youngest of the eight. When she was six months pregnant with Julio, her husband was murdered by a man in the village. And you cannot imagine how catastrophic that is, folks, in this culture. Because she had no skills. The, the men go out and earn the paycheck and, and work in the fields. And the wife's job is to feed the family, to clothe them, to, to wash and keep the house. And Anna, fortunately, was, was a, a, a committed believer in Jesus. She started crying out to God, deliver me. What am I going to do? My whole family is going to starve to death. And as she was telling us her story, she said, I don't even know where I got this idea, but I got the idea to sell plantain chips. So each morning, she would go buy plantains from a couple of men in the village. Then she would deep fry them in a batch. She'd take the plantains, which most of you know is like a small banana. She'd slice it real thin. She'd deep fry them in a vat. She'd then bag them in maybe 15 or 20 in a bag, salt them and, and season them. She would then, that would take a couple hours. She would then walk 30 minutes to the bus stop. She would then take the bus two hours to Don Lee. She would then spend two to three hours selling the plantain chips in Don Lee. She would then take the bus back 
and walk home. That was a nine and ten hour day. And after paying the guys in the village for the plantains and playing the bus fare, she made ten or fifteen dollars a day on a good day. And that's how she supported her family. And she said, but you know what? I kept crying out because the thing that bothered me most is seeing my kids constantly getting sick from the contaminated water. And there was nothing I could do. I, I was scared to death that one of them would eventually die from the contaminated water. And then she looked at us and, and she started to choke up. She said, I've been praying to God to bring clean water. And I know God answered my prayer, but he looked, she looked at us and she said, but he did it through you, man of Rock Hills. And then she said this, and I'll never forget it. She said, every time I turn on that water, I'm going to say a prayer for all of you and give thanks to God. That's the kind of impact we have when we go on these trips. It's an amazing thing. We, when we go on these trips, fulfill those missions that, that David talks about. So that's the third story, the story of Anna. It's an amazing story. But all those weave into the great story, the grand story. Because when David says at the very beginning of Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does anybody know who else said those words? Jesus, when he was nailed to the cross. And the final words of the psalm are, for he has done it or he has finished it. You know what those were? Those were the final words Jesus said on the cross. So what David is pointing us to is the greatest story of all time, the grand narrative. It's the story of the God of the universe, the God who from everlasting to everlasting is one God in three persons. And we don't fully understand this, but God has always existed and, and always been in perfect community with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's been perfect love, perfect humility, perfect sacrifice to one another. But out of the overflow of the love of God and his very character, he decided to create children. Just like when you marry someone and, and you decide to have children, it's out of the overflow of love because you want nothing more than to pour out unconditional love on those kids. You know those kids aren't going to give anything back. But you care about loving them, and that's the way God was. He created us out of the overflow of the love that is his character. But something tragic happened, didn't it? We rebelled. And God, being infinitely just, could not just turn his, his eye to that. He couldn't turn a blind eye. He couldn't just sweep it under the rug. But he loved us. And so God did what only God can do. He chose to come pay the debt for us. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came to earth, lived a perfect life, was nailed on the cross and forsaken. Put it, all the sin in the world was put on Jesus and, and Jesus was forsaken for your sake. And that's when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of that ordeal, he says, it is finished. And that is the Greek word tetelestai. Tetelestai is an amazing Greek word because if you had a debt, if you, like a mortgage or a loan debt from a bank back in that day and age, you'd have a paper drawn up. And when you made your last payment, they would stamp tetelestai on it. That's the word that Jesus spoke. Paid in full. It is finished. If you served a sentence in a jail, after your sentence was over, they, they always had a document and it said, your sentence is paid in full. Your debt to society is paid in full. Tetelestai. And that is the word Jesus spoke 
as his last words. It is finished. And that is the grand story. My question to you today is simply this. And it's a question that each one of you has to answer. No one can answer it for you. You have to decide. And the question is, what are you going to do about your life? I can tell you what most Americans are saying. The American story, what most Americans are about, is making as much money as they can make. They're about accumulating as many material possessions as they can accumulate. They're about getting each day as much pleasure as they can get. And I want to suggest to you, that's a, that's a rather selfish self-absorbed, almost narcissistic story, isn't it? If, if you really look at it, it's kind of a, a small story, an ugly story, a story without real love or adventure or beauty. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way, folks. It doesn't have to be that way because perhaps the greatest freedom God has ever given us is the freedom to write our own story. So when you answer the question, what is your story going to be about? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. First suggestion, if you haven't done it before, why would you not want to write your story into the greatest story ever told? The epic story of all the universe. The, the epic story that goes from everlasting to everlasting. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus, that he paid the debt, that it is finished, that it is tetelestai. Why would you not do that and join the greatest story that will ever be? Secondly, why not have your story be about answering the cries of the brokenhearted? As, as David writes, there are brokenhearted people all over the world. But you know what? There are brokenhearted people right here in San Antonio. There are people crying out to God in San Antonio. There are people crying out to God in this faith community. Why don't you become part of doing that? God is pleased to use his people, the people, uh, the Christians, the people of his church, to meet those needs, to be his hands and feet in answering the cries of the brokenhearted and in responding when people are crying out, where are you, God? Will you deliver me? He is pleased to use us. You can do that by being part of our service events, serve the city like we've been doing all summer. Uh, once a quarter, we have a service event that you can be part of. You know, another thing, a very simple thing, is everything we do, the water projects, everything takes resources, takes money. How about if you step out of the, the self-absorbed American story and start giving a little bit of what God has blessed you with consistently to the story of answering the cries of the brokenhearted. Give some resources in a consistent way. One of the ways you can do it today is buy some coffee from Rody. Rody, we all, we all met Rody. Rody is just an amazing man. He came to know Jesus because of a Rock Hills water project two years ago. 
He is now on fire for Jesus. He wants to go around and spend more time going to other villages, teaching other men, discipling. He comes to every Rock Hills or every Impact Water trip five a year and gives his testimony. But he needs, in order to do that, his time away from his, his coffee plants, he needs to sell his coffee at a better price. And so we're buying it from Rody. We're not giving him money. We're buying his coffee at a fair price so he can afford to continue to serve Jesus. How about doing that? And finally, how about being part of this process Dave talked about, or David talked about when he says, your name was proclaimed throughout the world. How can we do that? One simple way, a very powerful way, is to have a good marriage. I think one of the reasons why Christians are not having an impact in the world is people look at the marriages of Christians and they they don't see anything special there. How about today you decide, today, I am going to give unconditionally to my spouse. I don't care what they do. This This is honestly, this is my passion. I try to do this each and every day. I try to get up every day and say to myself, I am not going to to connect my Uh, performance as a husband to what Jan does for me or doesn't do for me. I want to have such integrity. I want to have such honor that I will serve her unconditionally, that I will be a great husband no matter how she treats me. Why not start that way? I promise you, if you do that, everything in your marriage will change and your marriage will radiate something about the truth of God into this world. There's so many ways you can proclaim God's truth in the world. Raise great kids. Again, give to Rock Hills because everything we do, we connect to the story, the great story of God and what he's done. You can go on a, on a water project because we always share the gospel. There are so many ways you can be part of proclaiming his truth into the world. Oh, yeah. There is one last small story. You see... The other thing that Anna has been praying about for years is the heartache of little Julio not ever having met his dad. And she prayed as a woman of faith that somehow he might get to know God. So there was a point during the week when Julio and I were shoveling, and my heart began to break for him knowing that he'd never met his dad. And I shared a little bit about, about my story, my abusive dad. And I, and I said, Julio, earthly fathers aren't always great. It, it breaks my heart that you didn't know your earthly father. But you know what? Your real father, your true father, is the father in heaven. But your relationship is broken with him. And I explained how sin had corrupted his relationship with God. But Jesus had paid the price to tell us I was finished. And all he had to do is put his faith in Jesus to get reconnected with God. And I asked him if he wanted to do that. And his eyes were getting wide. And he said, yes. And then some people showed up. And that conversation got put on hold. But later that week, I was preaching. And I rarely do this. At the end of the preaching, I I saw Julio in the crowd, and I said, if you want to put, and we had a translator, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, just pray this prayer with me. And I prayed a prayer, putting faith in Jesus Christ, showing, leading someone in how to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I went to Julio after I had finished, and I said, did you pray that? And he said, yes, he did. And so, folks, I'm convinced, completely convinced, 
that there will be a day. That day when this part of the story goes away. When we join the great story, the grand narrative, the the epic adventure from everlasting to everlasting. That whoever's put their faith in Jesus will be there together. And I believe I'll see Julio again. Let's pray.